The Seattle Seahawks played their first preseason game of 2022, and while they came up just short against the Pittsburgh Steelers, there is a lot to glean from the contest. Joining us to do just that is Seattle sports media legend and friend of the show, Danny O'Neill. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my square-jawed producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? I didn't realize you were so into geometry, Jackson. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Feeling weirdly, weirdly optimistic about the Seattle Seahawks. Odd. Now... Now is the time for that. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> it's a it's a sickness, a curse that comes around once a year. So, how are you doing, man? Seasonal optimism. Oh, I'm doing good, man. Same same here. You know, I I think you and I have been pretty honest about our views on this season and and seeing it more as a piece of a bigger picture than necessarily what the outcome of this particular year is. But still, great to watch some real football and. I mean, we've got a preseason game in the books, and while it didn't necessarily look pretty the whole time, the Seahawks did rally late, tied the game before Pittsburgh scored on their final play to win it. But before we dig into that, and we do have an ideal guest for doing that with, there was a roster move today. This morning, the Seahawks beat tweeted out that stalwart secondary switchblade Ugo Amadi was likely to be cut during the first roster cutdown this week. Then... John Schneider managed to wrangle a trade before releasing him, sending Amadi to the Philadelphia Eagles in exchange for former second-round wide receiver J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. Mike, is there anything to this, or is it just August roster churn? I think that the timing is probably pretty indicative. I mean, the report came out that they were going to cut Amadi about an hour or so before the trade was announced. seemed pretty likely that the Eagles were going to do the same with uh, Arcega-Whiteside. So... Eh, you know, it's kind of just a flyer for both teams. See if it works out. I think if anything, it's probably just a good sign uh, that Seattle feels relatively confident in the uh, guys that they have at nickel right now. Between Kobe Bryant, Marquise Blair, uh, the corpse of Justin Coleman, all of the above. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of how I took it too. You know, uh, at this point, there's just a lot of depth shuffling. And I think that... You know, Seattle does have a lot of question marks after their top two receivers, so why not throw another formerly highly touted player into that mix? They obviously have lots to work with in terms of their knowledge of Ugo Amadi, and and clearly they're seeing enough from some of the younger guys to say, all right, he's expendable, and kudos to them for getting at least an extra dart throw out of the deal. Do you think that they're just doing it to troll Eagles fans just to get DK and uh, J-Jaw on the same team? <laughs> I do love that. And for those listening who may not be aware, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles infamously took J.J. Arcega-Whiteside ahead of DK Metcalf. Uh, seven picks in front of the Seahawks. And <laughs> they also took Jalen Rager in front of Justin Jefferson. <laughs> so I hope there's no Eagles fans listening because uh, – Man, that's a tough couple of whiffs. Thankfully, the Seahawks have never done anything like that. Nope. Nope. Just perfect drafts, always. Not once. Nope. Not even once. Hit, yeah, they've exactly. hit on every, every single, single pick. year, like clockwork. 
<laughs> All right, listen, man. For the first time in seven months, we actually have some honest to God football being played on the field. And I mean, the preseason both matters a lot and doesn't matter at all. Uh, you know what I mean? In in the former respect, we get a glimpse of guys who are battling for spots on the depth chart, and that is definitely valuable information. But to the latter point, the leading receivers in this game were Bo Melton and Gunnar Olchevsky. The leading rushers were DJ Dallas and Anthony McFarland, and the overall yards leader was a guy named Jalen Warren. Here to help us parse the particulars regarding what matters and what doesn't is a man who has covered dozens of Seahawks preseason games. He is one of the most prominent people to have ever covered the Seattle sports scene, and he has been gracious enough to join us in the lounge for the second time. A proper review of his resume would take up most of the show, but just to hit it quickly, he has written for ESPN.com, the Seattle Times, and the Seattle P.I., and was a very popular host of numerous radio shows for 710 ESPN Seattle. He is the venerable Danny O'Neill. Danny, thanks for taking the time. It is very nice of you. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with the, the, the introduction. I, I think you <laughs> used the word legend, which was uh, maybe more like a myth. Someone who's disappeared, like you've heard about me but not seen me for a while, like that. That might be that might be more more appropriate. But you're 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 entirely too kind, Jackson. I want to give a shout out to Mike Barwin for making the appropriate pronunciation of Arthega Whiteside. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, we're lisping on here, baby. Let's go. That's exactly right. The correct Spanish in, in, in influenced pronunciation from from over in Europe, Arthega Whiteside. Oh man, and and. What's being said without being said is that I said it wrong. <laughs> no, it's no, you didn't. No, you didn't make a mistake oh, at all. No, it oh, takes a, it takes something different to say like I'm gonna pronounce it like I'm from Barcelona. Like that <laughs> that takes an entirely different level of uh, of confidence. I just want to I want to acknowledge that Mike was able to do that. Oh man, he he did. He nailed it. And a lot of you listening are familiar with Danny for his work around here. Maybe not. Uh, they don't need to be. There's no, no reason listen, to be. Listen, man. Listen, man. You you have been one of my favorites since way before I started doing anything like this, and and it's still kind of crazy to me that you're on this show. But right now, you have one of the best newsletters out there called the Dang Apostrophe. Talk to us a little bit about that. <laughs> so, I've started putting out. Uh, it comes out a couple times a week. I don't I don't know if it's good. I'm not sure what it is, Jackson. To be honest. Because it's it's a rambling. Like sometimes it's about sports, sometimes it's about uh, me going on a amusement park ride until I almost puke. I wrote about that last. <laughs> that week. was a great. I love that one. <laughs> it was. I tell you, I met I met my limit. Like at 47 <laughs> years old, when I'm like, I'm not going on the fireball at the Santa Cruz <laughs> Beach Boardwalk ever again. Uh, and it's something that I'm in the midst of a career pivot, and I'm I'm not sure what's coming next. I'm trying to figure that out. And in a lot of ways, this newsletter is a chance for me to experiment with different things that I'm writing about. Um, so that is not going to be the best advertisement that you'll ever hear for for, <laughs> for a newsletter. Uh, but it is called the Dang Apostrophe. It is a reference to the punctuation mark in my last name that has given me no end of fits over the course of my life. And yeah, I, I think it's because I'm continuing to hang around uh, even even after my departure from from the Seattle media scene, yeah, well, it's great. Y'all should subscribe to it on Substack. It's two three times a week. I get a chuckle and a lot of insight from it. I uh, I definitely look forward to the release of each one. So I'm I'm glad you're doing it. But you're very we, kind. You're very <laughs> kind, Jackson. I'm just honest, man. 
But circling back to the Seahawks, you heard my thoughts on preseason a little bit ago. I want to defer to your experience. How much stock do you put into these games? You can learn about players. You learn very little about a team. Mm. You can learn about players, and especially when you see them placed into different situations where coaches are trying to get an idea of what guys can do. I don't think you draw very much from how good a team is going to be from how mm-hmm. they play in the in the preseason, but you can get you can get an idea about whether what whether a guy is going to be a candidate to to have a role on the team going forward. Sometimes sometimes it's a mirage, but a lot of times like you're getting an opportunity to see like okay, can this guy can this guy compete in at a different level this season than he has previously. Sure. Yeah. I feel like it's exposure for rookies dealing with NFL speed, right? Because even if you say, Oh, you know, he's just out there against the third stringers, the four stringers, those third and fourth stringers were studs in college. Right. And, and for a lot of these guys, they're every bit as good as the ones they played with and against at, at the collegiate level. But I, I agree with your point that we can't draw a ton of conclusions about the overall talent of a team because obviously teams are resting their best players Mm -hmm. or playing them just one or two series i mean you have the famous example of the detroit lions going 4-0 in the preseason before going 0-16 in the regular season but i i do think that there's plenty to pull on an individual basis like you said and i want to go position group by position group kind of get your impressions of this first game and I think it makes sense to start where the bulk of the attention has been all offseason. That is, of course, the quarterback position. We saw Geno Smith get the start. That's consistent with what we've seen in camp, namely him getting nearly 100% of the snaps with the ones. He went 10 of 15 for 101 yards. He ran for a touchdown at the end of the first half. Then he turned it over to Drew Locke, who went 11 for 15 for 102 yards and two touchdowns. Danny, your thoughts? I thought Locke looked better. Uh-huh. I thought I thought you saw... Locke more willing to throw down the field and Gino to a large extent did not. Um, I do get the sense that Gino's going to be the starter and mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much that, but I, th- I think Drew Locke has the higher upside uh, between the two of them. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure if the decision is if Seattle went with Drew Locke as the starter, that might, sap any confidence that Geno Smith would have or he'd feel like he was passed over. So I think we're going to see both guys start this year. And I think that the Seahawks have kind of, for better or worse, decided Geno's going to be the guy at the beginning. And then if he takes it and runs with it, great. If he doesn't and we end up either gets hurt or we end up going in a different, we'll go with Drew a little bit down the road and that will give him a little bit more time in the offense. That's that's the sense that I get, but... The only reason I say that is because Gino's had almost all the time with the ones. I know. I know. And and we're starting to get close enough to right. week one where if if this was a true competition, you wonder, like, are don't you gotta give Locke some reps with the guys that he would be playing with if he were to win the competition? And we've only got two years to evaluate where where Pete Carroll didn't know who his starting quarterback was, right? Mm-hmm. Like his first year here, it was Hasselback. They talked about Whitehurst, but it was Hasselback. And then the next year was the lockout-shortened season, and Tavares Jackson was named the starter day one. 
because they said, hey, he's got familiarity with Daryl Bevel. There was there was the expectation, I think, that there was going to be competition between Tavares and Whitehurst. There was not. And then the year after that, Matt Flynn started the first two preseason games in 2012. But Russ, Tavares, and and Flynn were all getting time with the ones. And in fact, it was probably Tavares that was getting a little bit less time with the ones. Pete said at the time it was because we've already seen what he looks like, which I think sure. we we kind of knew what it was. So to me, it's been telling that we're, we're now entering the third week of practice and it's still Gino getting all the time with the ones. But I, I think Locke is the better of the two quarterbacks. For me, the question with Locke is going to be is if Pete's going to be able to... One of two things is going to happen. Either Drew Locke is going to stop throwing jump balls because he has a tendency to chuck it, or Pete's going to make his peace with the fact that the better of the two quarterbacks is going to occasionally commit the kind of turnovers that make Pete Carroll insane. I'm going right. to I'm gonna go with it's going to have to be the, the former because I don't think Pete's ever going to accept those turnovers. Is it all about the ball, or is it all about the balls? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing... Locke's got a live arm, man, and he's a better athlete than... I feel like we always say that with white dudes, like where it's like he's a better athlete than people think. Like, but he is Sneaky like he's athletic. able to he's able to make some things happen. Like he's a pretty good athlete. But and this 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 is based largely off of what I saw in Denver is like he will huck it. Like he'll right. just he'll let it fly. And and that's the sort of thing. Pete, there's no turnover Pete hates more than the 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 second and long and the quarterback just flinging it down because he's impatient and wants to see if something can happen. Right. I feel like there's kind of two aspects to this with Pete Carroll, because you, you mentioned there is this deep old school aversion to turnovers uh, that Pete Carroll has. And, and he takes a lot of flack for wanting to shorten the game and run a lot. Although mm-hmm. and I say this every time they've actually been pretty pass heavy in neutral game scripts the last few years, but that's the reputation one thing they definitely don't do is run a lot of plays compared to the rest yep. of the NFL. And he he does want to limit variance, but he's also in love with the explosive plays. And mm-hmm. for the last 10 years, he's had a guy that has largely done both, been able to hit the big shots and protect the ball. Now he might have to choose. Geno Smith is a pretty safe quarterback, but the explosive plays just aren't going to be there in a way that they would be with Drew Locke. Of course, you are inviting Uh, The extra risk with that, we've talked about that a little bit. I'm also curious in the other side of this coin, which is the locker room politics of choosing a starting quarterback. Geno has been there. Drew Locke's the new guy. It seems like Locke has acquitted himself well with the teammates so far, but what sense have you gotten in covering locker rooms in terms of the impact that choosing a starting quarterback has, and how does that relate to guys like Geno and Drew? I don't think this is going to be a decision that that sort of aggravates a locker room. Mm. And the reason I say that is because both of these guys have had opportunities to play in the past, and neither one has really sort of taken it and run with it. They're both bounce-back projects mm-hmm. in, 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 in sort of looking at their, at their careers. I think that Locke's got the better arm out of the two, but... When you run into issues in the locker room, it's when a coach is sticking with a veteran that the team sort of no longer believes in, or you've got 
sort of the the sense that the younger guy there's a reluctance to turn it over to him because because they they just don't trust him and he's clear and that doesn't really fit and from what i saw this summer both those guys get along pretty well together so yeah. i really yeah. i don't i don't think this is going to be i i've seen teams when there's been friction over over the quarterback i i don't see that happening here what was it like in 2012 where like you said you had Tavares there who my understanding was he was a locker room guy. Team yes. really liked Tavares. He was a dog. They had his back. Then you spend the big money on Matt Flynn and you draft a rookie. And let's be honest, Russ played his ass off that yeah, he did. I mean, it was it was so clear that there were extra notches to his game that the other two just didn't have. But it was also starting an unheralded rookie with a team that was ready to compete and really ascend. What was that dynamic like 10 years ago? There was people were excited about Russ, man. Like that was that was very clear very early on. Like the players, people were excited about him. They did like Tavares. And Tavares was someone who earned a lot of trust from his teammates and admiration for the way he'd played through the torn pec the, the previous year. Like it'd been really freaking tough to be able to do that. And but man, like there was a feeling, I would say if there was uncertainty about Russ, it came four games in when they were, I think they were two and two at that point. Mm-hmm. They'd, they'd lost the opener at Arizona. And then I think they'd lost at St. Louis. Like there was a, there was a, and they, they lost that game in both of those games. They had the ball and were driving with a chance to win. The Arizona game, they had like seven plays from inside the 20 and never got it in. And then the the St. Louis game, I'm fairly certain that I'm fairly certain that Anthony McCoy like slipped and fell on a route and then there was a pick on that that final. At that point, there was probably a little bit of question of like they got a good defense and they were two and two and were fortunate to be two and two because one of those wins was Green Bay. The next week they played it at Carolina. And Russ threw a pick six pretty early in the game, but then played awesome the rest of the game, especially on third down. But everybody, everybody, the question wasn't should Russ be starting? It was whether Pete had the guts to start a rookie because Russ, totally. Russ, Russ played the best out of those quarterbacks that preseason. Yeah, and and it wasn't just like oh, you've got Tavares, who's you know was kind of the Geno before Geno, and had the locker room and, and proven himself to those guys was kind of like low ceiling guy. They had just paid Matt Flynn. Like there, you are sitting a lot of money on the bench by starting Russell Wilson. Yeah, but man, Wilson's arm was so much better. I know. Like, I mean, that was I the know. thing of like it just jumped out. And Flynn, people liked Flynn. And he's it, but man, Russ Russ's arm, and especially receivers. Like looking at how, God, they just want it. it can you imagine like seeing he he threw a great deep ball from the very very beginning from like the that guy yeah man. I next level now they didn't let him do it very much right but uh yeah I I don't I don't remember there being it was really a question of whether Pete had the guts to start a rookie yeah yeah it's gonna be super interesting I think not just this year to see how he handles this and of course we're gonna have the better parts of five months of real football to give us a much clearer idea of what these two have. It's going to be very interesting to see how that informs next off season. When I think everyone is expecting them to make a splash play at the quarterback position. There's a chance that one of these guys emerges this year, 
But I think most people most people believe that the starting quarterback for 2023 probably isn't on the roster right now, or at least their long-term starting quarterback is, isn't on the roster right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Pete Carroll's 70. He's, he's not looking for a slow burn. I don't think, I think he wants his guy. You know, what's interesting though. I don't think he's approaching this. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think he's seeing this as it's got to happen this year or next year. Like I, I sure, but, but it is, it it just jumps out. Like at any point you talk about that and even the decision to trade Russ, it's the contrast with having a coach that is the oldest coach in the league. It makes it it's it's kind of the elephant in the room. Absolutely. It it will remain the most fascinating aspect of this team this season and honestly all the way through till this time next year, I think is is the quarterback position. It's the most interesting position on most teams, but it's far more settled on just about every other team besides Seattle. But one of the other big battles on this roster is for the lead running back position. And there's been a lot of movement here this offseason. Rashad Penny signed a one-year extension after finishing last season as arguably the most productive running back in the NFL over the final month. Chris Carson retired in the wake of a devastating neck injury. That was really shitty to see. Um, and then the Seahawks pissed off every Microsoft Excel user by drafting Ken Walker third in the second round of the draft. He joins Penny. DJ Dallas and Kansas City cast off Darwin Thompson in the Seattle backfield. And I'm pretty sure that's everybody, right, Mike? No, you're you're missing my favorite guy. <laughs> oh, we have a fellow enthusiast in the house, in the lounge. Uh, yeah. I, I can't I can't possibly think of who else. Put some respect be. on the man's name. Come on, <laughs> Mike, Travis I, Homer. I, I, six I no touches, oh, 74 right. yards. <laughs> he was the man. That's dynamic, Jackson. He was the man. Like, wasn't he? The, he was. A, he was. A, I thought he was the most impressive offensive player for Seattle on Saturday guys, night. Am I wrong? Oh my gosh, you guys! You guys should like go on a vacation and stay in the same hostel. And I do not. I'll say this: I don't understand in that, in Barcelona. Yeah, I don't. Under, <laughs> I don't understand the antagonism to Travis Homer that exists, and it happened when we were on the radio show, like to the point where I was like, "Okay, I'm all aboard." Like that dude was a one of the best blitz pickups. Like he's fantastic. He should be their th- their their two minute back, or when they go three wide, like when he's the lone back in 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 hurry up situations, he's great at it. And I I like Travis Homer. I don't understand. He I don't is. understand I, the I hostility. Like, I like Travis. I like Travis Homer too. Look at I that. Just, I can. Jackson is being swayed by the second. Oh, it's beautiful. No, no, y'all know I I like Travis Homer for for what he does. I just like to pitch Mike some shit because that's his guy. <laughs> but. You know, I mean, I I think that Travis Homer is one of those guys that is way more important to the coaches than he is to the fans. You know, he is everything Danny just said. He will pick up the blitz. I mean, that is it's it's something that I think is hard for us that don't play to really understand not only how crucial that skill is, but how difficult it is. I mean, you are every time you're smaller than the dude you're blocking. And that guy's got a full head of steam by the time he gets to you. So it, I mean, it's real man's game stuff to pick up a blitz and you have to be able to identify which guy is coming free and get there in a way that doesn't affect the quarterback's drop back. It is a very, very valuable skill to have. Travis Homer has it. I just had to get my dig in at Mike. Well, not everybody can be as skilled as Sean Alexander when it comes to blitz pickups. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, they didn't ask him to do a whole lot of that. Thing. Well, no, because he played himself out of that job. Like I remember sure watching did. what was who was the middle linebacker from the from the Rams, Pisa Tinoo Samoa. I'm I'm mispronouncing his last name, but I remember watching Alexander try to block him and. Pisa shortened his neck by about an inch, just yeah. walloped him. Um, and yeah. I think Shan, Sean had a, yeah, nah, n- no, yeah. not me. N- for who, for what moment? Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of a, a Deion Sanders, I'm really good at this other stuff, so I ain't going to tackle type of thing. <laughs> which, which, to be fair, Sean is incredible at. and uh, Totally. But, yeah. to- Sean Alexander is the most unfairly criticized Seattle sports star of my lifetime, I think. The yes, the the yeah. tail end of the of the career was less impressive, but it it was also before I think we had culturally accepted how short the lifespan of an NFL running back was. You know, they they were expecting him late in his career to still be the MVP Sean Alexander, but yes, he had a great offensive line, this and that, but the dude was exceptional. I mean, his prime is up there with the primes of the greats. And there are people out here there who feel this, that like he was an underachiever, that he didn't That's gain insane. the tough yards. Like, if you think that, he was the best running back in NFL history then, and he just didn't live up to his potential. Because you look at where <laughs> right. he ranks. Yeah, like, if you, totally. think, if you think he got all of that while being a front runner who didn't... Like you really you you think that he was the most talented, physically talented running back ever to play in the NFL because he didn't he didn't get the most out of what he could. Because if that what he finished with was not the most and was sixty percent of Sean Alexander, Sean Alexander must have been like if right. if you achieved to his truest form, must have been the best player. Totally. Uh, I mean, I was at the game where he scored five touchdowns in the first half of a football Vikings. game. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Who your offensive line is, who's calling plays, whatever. Five touchdowns in 30 minutes takes some real insane upper level potential being fulfilled to pull something like that off. Now you're going to get all of the comments that I heard for years of people explaining to you how Marshawn Lynch would have averaged 2,500 yards a year rushing if he'd run behind sure. that line. He might have too. I mean, Marshawn, Marshawn's amazing. You know, it's uh, it, he, it, he would not have averaged 2,500 yards no, a year. No, certainly not. Be no, no one line. would have. But it's no very, very because it's very no funny one has. It's, right. it's very funny when people will say, "Well, if you had this offensive line, it was- get out of here." Yeah, exactly, exactly. Pulling it back to the running backs that this team currently has, we did have Rashad Penny out nursing what appears to be a minor leg injury. That I, I gave... saw Seattle's fans responded to that exceptionally well, like with this sort of calm yeah. composure that I've come to expect right. from all, like there was no wailing, there was no sure. gnashing of teeth, there was no like, oh my God, he's hurt again. There was. It was really, I just want to applaud all of the Seahawks fans for being totally normal in their reaction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, and, and I think, you know, Chris Carson is one of those guys that really appeals to the typical football fan and, and and the all kinds of football fans. I mean, not only was he super talented, he was really, really tough. The way that he ran um, was the type of style that I think really excites us when we watch the game, whereas Rashad Penny is, to call him a finesse runner is to sell him short, but He's he's smooth and he's explosive in a way that isn't bouncing off of a bunch of tackles like Carson or Lynch. It's just if you can give him that sliver, he can take everything that's there. And 
and he's devastating once he gets to the second and third levels. He's just so difficult to tackle in the open field, not because he's putting a bunch of Barry Sanders jukes on people, but because he can just vaporize the defender's pursuit angle. And I, I think that he is someone that carries a lot of value to this offense. But his absence did set the stage for the exciting rookie to get out there and, and show what he could do. He had five carries for 19 yards. He caught his only target for another 11. What did you think of Ken Walker's NFL debut? I think Walker's going to be a really good running back. And I think, I think Seattle, for all of the different sort of criticisms you can have of their offensive approach, I think that they've they've got their assets stocked in the right spots for how they want to play the game this year. And, and I think that you're going to see a pretty heavy emphasis, obviously, on the ground game and the combinations of Walker and, and Penny. I, I expect we're going to see, hear a lot about how, like, riding the hot hand and whoever gets to, to finish it. But I think, I think Pete's going to like both of these guys. And then you'll see whether it's Dallas Homer or, 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 or perhaps Darwin end up getting some of like opportunities I think you'll see a different back I don't think it's going to be either Walker or Penny in the in the hurry up situations hmm. I think you'll see someone else I think it'll mm-hmm. I, I would guess it's going to be Homer but or or DJ Dallas with his receiving tech I think they're going to be pretty well stocked there um and the fact that you've got two guys is going to provide a little bit of insurance against injury, even though we've seen Seattle pretty well stocked before and run out of running backs because that is, that is a position where you can have some attrition. Well, and, and, you know, going back to what we were saying about Homer earlier, same thing for DJ Dallas. He's really good at the stuff you need a guy to do that baseline NFL competence when it comes to being able to get what's blocked, being able to block, being able to catch a pass that's thrown to you. It sounds simple, but there is a reason that turnover at the running back position is higher than any other position. And it's not just because of injury. There's a myriad of things being asked of you. You got to have, like I said, a baseline competence at all of it. If you want to be on the field, it's really nice that Seattle has two guys who can do it. Now we've seen what it looks like when those are the two that you have to rely on. And it leads to, you know, bringing Marshawn Lynch out of retirement and and getting 2.5 yards per carry from him instead of the other two guys. But uh, I thought that both of these guys showed out really, really well in this game. I mean, DJ Dallas had 90 yards and a touchdown on, what, 11 touches. Travis Homer had 74 yards on just six touches. I mean, there's these guys are really capable backs. They look like NFL players going against not quite NFL players. And that's what you want to see from guys who've been in the league for two or three years. You know, I, I think that at this point, if they were going to be meaningful pieces of a contending team in the future, Seattle wouldn't have used the top 40 pick on Walker. And, you know, Mike and I were recording live when Seattle made that pick, and I was really, really excited about it. I've, I've kind of come back around on the importance of running back, um, not so much as a universal tenant, but certainly to Seattle. Talent at the running back position matters a great deal. And... I've watched a lot of college running backs. Uh, very few have the tape that Kenneth Walker III has. He is, he reminds me a lot of Rashad Penny, and it's easy to forget. Rashad Penny almost won a Heisman in San Diego State, was the leading rusher in the NFL. Uh, Ken Walker's got that, and there's nothing about what I saw from his tape at Michigan State or even at Wake Forest before that 
that tells me he can't do that at the NFL level. The best sign for people looking at the returns from Ken Walker is that he has been healthy throughout training camp. Mm -hmm. And that was something he wasn't healthy at different points. Like they held him out. And when you, Pete wants guys to be in the best shape possible. And that might sound like every coach wants that. And that's probably true. But when Pete looks at it and you've got guys with soft tissue injuries when they're younger, what he looks at it and says is that you're not in good enough shape to do what we're asking you to do. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're being sat down because whether it's hamstring or calf or because, because you're, you're not able to hold up under what we're asking you to do. And I think that over the off season, can it, like a lot of other younger players, Walker was someone they're like, well, we're not, sh- we're not sure sh- he's, he's, he's not in good enough shape yet. It looks like he is like that. They're happy with how he looks. Yeah. And that's a great sign. Well, and, and Pete Carroll is someone who believes strongly <laughs> in running back depth. Um, he, he does. He's he got over- a weird, he's got a weird fixation with dude's weight, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, he does. I love Pete. He does. Like you he remember does. how he would constantly reference Penny's weight. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like, it was not subtle. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. So, so I would say this, that, that that's a really good sign with Walker. Um, yeah. It's where I would say that's been a really bad sign with D Eskridge, man. Like, yeah. and, and, and continuing on, that's, 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 I don't, I, I think that that's a really positive sign for Walker. Totally. And, and again, you know, this season for me is less about wins and losses in 2022 and more about which of these guys are going to be around when this team is a contender again. And Walker seems like the type of guy, I mean, he's so young. He just turned 21, you know, he, he has a lot of carries, but he's so young for an NFL running back that I don't mind if he just gets 40% of the snaps this year and learns the NFL game because when it is time to really start competing for the NFC West for a playoff spot and hopefully for a Super Bowl again, uh, you know, in the next three or four years, nothing about what I see from him makes me think he can't be the guy on the offense. And for Pete Carroll, having a running back with the capability of being the guy is a big deal. And he's talked about it, you know, that he sees he I think he said something to the effect of if he needs to be out there for all three downs, we are comfortable with that. And that is not something that Pete Carroll says lightly. Yeah, it's you've got a situation where Rashad Penny's back on a one year deal at a pretty healthy salary. But this is, hey, can you validate what you did the second half of last season? That that's that's what we had been hoping for from the moment we draft you in the first round and we'll, we'll see if, if you get it. And at the same token, you've got Walker, a guy that they clearly do believe in. Um, and it's, it's not a situation of like, here's, here's, there's only one job here for the two of you, but both of those guys should have opportunities and, and be highly incentivized to make the most of them. Totally. Totally. I, I think it's going to be a really exciting thing to watch this year and and something that I think is going to require some patience uh, with Walker, just like with with any rookie. One thing he's not going to see in the preseason are the types of defenses that he's going to run into in the regular season. But seeing him out there looking decisive, I think that's the number one thing I look for in a young running back. Young, any young player really is how decisive 
are they when the game is moving fast and the lights are on and and he looks the part um i mean i could talk about ken walker for the rest of the show but the seahawks also threw 30 passes in this game which means someone had to catch him and for the bulk of Pete carroll's tenure uh, targets have been funneled towards a couple of guys and those couple of guys for this team dk metcalf and tyler lockett didn't play as i mentioned earlier bo melton showed out he had 47 yards on a couple of catches while fellow late-round pick Dariq Young chipped in 30 more on four grabs. Other than that, it was a lot of spreading it around to running backs and tight ends. To that point, recent acquisition Noah Fant, who I'm very excited about, uh, snagged two balls for 20 yards. But Danny, is the wide proliferation of targets more a reflection of a Shane Waldron offense sans Russell Wilson? Or is it simply a result of the two best receivers not playing and you're just getting guys out there? Yeah, I, th- I, think, it's, I think it reflects the lack of a clear three, number three option. Mm-hmm. Who's your third best receiver? Is it Freddie Swain? <laughs> might be Freddie I, honestly, Swain. and he didn't play. Travis Homer. It, it, <laughs> it might be Travis Homer. I yeah. Mean, se- seriously, like there's, and I think I think that's that's part of why Arthega Whiteside w- was brought in. Like I, I don't necessarily think he's going to make the team, but I'll bet that Pete's looking at him and saying like I've had success before with real big bodied wide receivers, and let's see let's see how that goes. I think there's a real question about the depth at receiver on, on, mm-hmm. on this team. If there was, if there was one spot that I would I would wonder most about the depth, that that's it on this team because I think you've got a clear like your starters are t- one of the best tandems in the league, and behind that, there's a whole lot of question marks. Totally and. I think one of the things that gets overlooked by a lot of folks and was certainly overlooked by me for many years um, before I started to really pay attention to it is having really capable, competent third, fourth, and fifth wide receivers is not just about can this guy get open and catch a pass. It's about what are you telegraphing to the defense? Because if I see Penny Hart on the field, I know it's a run play. And if I'm noticing it, then I guarantee you the opposing coaches are noticing it, right? It If you have three or four guys who are a threat to move the chains as receivers, it helps you disguise what you're trying to do on offense with your personnel groupings because you can't play DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett every single play. And if you're going to sub them out, the defense needs to know the threat of the pass is still there. And I don't know that Seattle has that third guy or that fourth guy right now which kind of sucks because Pete Carroll is not heavy on deception as far as NFL head coaches go already. So it, man, I, anytime you take a player as exciting as D Eskridge could be, and certainly anytime you take a player as early as they took D Eskridge, you get invested. You want to see something there. I'm not writing him off yet, but the guy can't even practice. We're in year two and Man, if you're going to use the 50th overall pick on a guy, you need him to contribute. And if you miss there, and they've been getting just a big zero so far, that creates a big gap that you have to use some valuable assets to then fill again. Yeah, it's just a tool you don't have, right? Like, it's yep. it's not even... And and I would say this, like, it, it's past the point of, like, is he going to pay off with the, the 50th overall pick? Like, you're... A, is he, is he going to get on the field? 
Mm-hmm. Like that's 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 the question for D Eskridge right now is how how much are you going to have him available this year because they clearly have a need for it um, in in their in their receiver ranks. He does and his speed is 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 something that makes him a special threat and and I'm not I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure what you can expect from your three and four wide receivers if if he's not among that group yeah I agree and the horizontal aspect of his game that he really excelled at in college is a big part of what Shane Waldron wants to do right now they don't have that jet sweep guy they don't have that you know, bubble screen guy, someone who can take a very safe pass or or a handoff and create an explosive play. I mean, Eskridge was supposed to be that guy, but that is a very difficult skill set to find. It's why you take a shot on a guy like him so early is there's only a few of them in any given draft. And I mean, he's so little, that makes it tough for sure. But man, I, I just... I want to see a healthy enough stretch from him at some point this year just so the team can say, yes, he is worth pursuing as the third option or no, we got to find that next guy because he's kind of keeping them in limbo right now. Well, there you got it. Jackson wants to see something. Give me something. Show it Give to me. Give me something. <laughs> uh, moving forward even further, uh, the offensive line I thought struggled as a whole, but I did come away very impressed by the two rookie tackles, and I think that is certainly the biggest storyline with this unit. Uh, Charles Cross looked like a comfortable veteran out there. He had sharp footwork. He had this effortless reception of crashing pass rushers. Like, he just caught them and kept them there. And that is like, I mean, you were just on an island as a left tackle in the NFL. And granted, he's not facing, you know, the Watt brothers or the Bosa's yet, but he looked so natural doing that, that that gave me a great deal of comfort because I think he is already one of the most important Seahawks on the roster. And then on the other side, Abe Lucas, he got beat pretty bad on one pass pro rep, but then shortly after he absolutely pancaked a dude eight yards downfield, like he was Orlando pace. And I thought he generally looked pretty comfortable too. So I, you know, we, we can't talk about every guy that took a snap on the O-line in this game. So I do want to focus on the two tackles. I liked what I saw. I think that's covered most of the <laughs> offseason is that it's really promising. Yeah. And that's going to be a huge risk that Seattle's running this season because they started two rookies in 2011, which I think is the reference point for most people for this season because yeah. of the quarterback situation. It certainly but is he- for me. But you had James Carpenter and John Moffat, and they didn't have an offseason to work together. But the, the the takeaway from the first five weeks is that their quarterbacks were just getting bludgeoned. Like they couldn't they couldn't protect. There was huge problems on the offensive line. I think I think they're really pleased with with how the rookie tackles look, and I do I do think that they're going to go into the season starting those rookie tackles. Um, there there will be some learning on the job, but I actually I I actually think between between having a quarterback that doesn't hold on to the ball as long as Russell Wilson did mm-hmm. and and having a little more I, I I think I think people are gonna be I don't think offensive line is going to be the weak point that I thought it was a year ago, if that makes sense. 
I, th- yeah. I think I, I think in a post Dwayne Brown era, I think I think Seattle looks better on offensive line than I expected. That's going to be a huge deal. I mean, it is for any team, but I don't put a lot of stock into PFF grades. They are not without their value. Um, they serve as a useful reference point. I think they have Seattle's offensive line ranked 32nd out of 32 teams coming into this. And that seems harsh. You literally can't get harsher than that. But if they are even uh, a middle third offensive line this year, what that portends for the future is huge because you've got your two most important spots on rookie contracts growing together, learning together, and they are going to make mistakes this year and they are going to get their quarterbacks killed a few times. And that's kind of one of the reasons I'm okay with them not going out and getting the quarterback, not drafting a rookie quarterback this year. You want, you want somebody else to take the beatings? Totally. You, you, you don't put you don't put human beings in cars when you're crash testing them. Don't let Gino Smith or Drew Locke hear this. You guys are the crash test dummies for the rookie tackles. I'm just saying, Thank God we don't have a good quarterback. I'm just saying, if you're going to draft a rookie quarterback of the future and he has to adjust to the speed of the NFL and the defensive ends, my God, that Seattle is going to face in their own division in the AFC West this year. I mean, you talk about destroying a, a quarterback's confidence. I, Roll the ball out with Gino or Drew, and and they've been around long enough that they're going to identify pressure and and be able to, you know, make do with it as much as possible. But I'm I'm glad that it's not two rookie tackles and a rookie quarterback. <laughs> I, is it going to be the worst pass protection in the league? I I don't think it will. Um, yeah, but. I just I don't think that's going to be the thing we come back and think is the biggest problem with Seattle's offense this year is the offensive line. I agree, and you know, for again, all you know, the the national media seems to want to talk about with Pete Carroll's predilections is he just wants to run the ball all the time, all the time, all the time. The two tackles they drafted came from two of the most pass-heavy spread offenses in college football. I mean, both Mike Leach offenses, where you're going to pass it. 75, 80% of the time, it's going to be wide splits. You're going to be all by yourself against the other team's best pass rusher. These guys are used to that. I, I think that pass protection is the reason they were both drafted so high. So I, I'm with you. I, I share your optimism that when we look back at what I think will probably be something like a 6-11 and 11 season and we say, okay, what needs overhauling? I don't think it's going to be pass protection. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very well said. That is the most backhanded compliment that you can give to any position group. <laughs> it's not going to be the worst thing about a six and eleven team. <laughs> but I, I, and I don't mean it as a back. You're definitely right. It is a backhanded compliment, but I mean it more in that. What are realistic expectations for two rookie tackles? You know, it's not something that happens very often, and I think most people would assume they're going to get their asses kicked more often than not. I think they're going to hold their own. I think by the time we get to November, December, assuming they're both still healthy, we're going to see the two anchors moving forward. And the team is going to feel real comfortable filling in the gaps between those guys. If you had to see one development throughout this season, would it have been feeling that confidence that they hit on both of those picks to anchor their line for the next however long? So the hard thing about that, like it clearly would be the best thing that could happen for the franchise, but it's also their first and third 
round picks, right? Like that's that's two pretty significant chips that were there, and they should mm-hmm. be like they. Sh- but yeah, given what's happened with this franchise, like, and given given the general perception about about the offensive line and how that's developed, and like my big complaint about PFF is not that they're not useful reference. I do think they provide useful reference points. I just think that an offensive line that's blocking for Russell Wilson is always going to look worse than it's actually playing. Sure. Like yep. I, I just, I, I think, I think that happens. And, and I do think that there will be some ways in which Seattle's pass protection, even if it doesn't necessarily improve, will look better simply because you don't have some of the same sacks being taken. Totally. Yeah, and and I think that the way Russell Wilson plays football is antithetical to the way Shane Waldron wants to call football games. And I think that while there will be a big talent drop-off at the quarterback position this year, I do think we're going to see an increase in scheduled timing. And that is one of the things that will help protect a quarterback more than anything else. Are are we? Can we talk about Russell Wilson at all? Yeah. Did you have you guys have you guys listened to the Peter King interview with him? Oh God, no. (laughs) He Peter King and I love Peter King. Peter King interviewed him at, at Broncos camp, and there is it's it's like the third or fourth question. And hey, Russ says a bunch of stuff that people in Seattle are going to get mad about that were totally innocuous answers. Like he he said nothing bad. Like it's just the typical sort of jilted. But then Peter basically says to him, he's like, in the West Coast offense, there are a lot of options that are available earlier and you have to take it. And it's like this roundabout and it's like this lead up to it. And he goes, so are we going to see a little less of that Fran Tarkenton sort of scrambling around in the back? And as he was saying it, I was like, oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> like he's asking The question Russ, that like, needed to be asked. <laughs> well, it's been asked like every year for the yep. past five years. I'm like, you get to throw the ball a little earlier sometimes? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're going to fire it out of there. And then Russ goes, well, I think that's some of the ways that you get some of the big plays. <laughs> Like, I love it. He's never going to change, man. No, and I, I don't know that he should. No, like, on, honestly, no. I don't know that he should. There's just a certain amount of like, and that that's what cracks me up about the wait till he gets the, the to the play caller of Nathaniel Hackett. Like eight games into this season, Nathaniel Hackett is going to be begging to talk to uh, Daryl Bevel or to Brian Schottenheimer or to yeah. Shane Waldron because like. You got Russell Wilson. You run the Russell Wilson offense, and that's, by the way, that's, that's great. Like, there's a, there's huge advantages up to it. There's also a cost of doing business. No, no question. Uh, you know, we had Griffin Sturgeon on this show, and and he talked about how there isn't a Daryl Bevel offense or a Brian Schottenheimer offense or a Shane Waldron offense in Seattle. There is a Russell Wilson offense, and there's parts of the field he's not going to throw to. There's certain reads he's just going to look off of in order to prolong a play. And I think that'll be the same in Denver. One of the things I appreciated about Nathaniel Hackett, who is coming in as a first-time head coach, I think he understood that it is Russell Wilson's team from day one, and he has basically said, we are going to run the offense that Russell Wilson wants to. Now, I think that's him caping up for his quarterback publicly, which is very, very smart, but I agree with you. I think that he is going to be pulling his beard hairs out by the end of October (laughs) Just like throw the ball, take the damn second it, option. Russ. Come yeah, on, exactly. I don't want second right. and thirteen. I do not right. want second and thirteen. And then, and then Russ is going to make some crazy play to Cortland yep. Sutton down the field, 
and it's going to lead to a game-winning drive, and you can't say shit about it. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly, and it's a tra- it's a transaction as a coach, a trade you should make ten times out of ten. Absolutely, absolutely, no, no question about that in my mind. Now we've talked about the offense for most of the show, and and I think it's a little bit easier to break down that side of things. Things are a little bit more segmented, but Seattle did spend half the game on defense, of course, and Danny. It looked like Seattle couldn't tackle a toddler out there for most of the game. Yeah, that was that was a rough watch. It it was, and tackling has been a hallmark of Seattle's defenses. I mean, forever since Pete Carroll showed up, uh, they the NFL's instructional videos on tackling use the Seahawk tackling method. Like they are sure tacklers. They've had elite tacklers, and even as they've lost their explosive plays on defense, as the turnovers have gone down. The sacks have gone down. They've still tackled really, really well. <laughs> Man, that was that was tough to see. How much of that is just inexperience versus, oh, my God, these guys might be in trouble this year? Yeah, I'm not going to ring an alarm bell yet about that, especially when you consider the guys that weren't playing. Yep. Um, but the enduring mystery of what happened to the Seahawks sort of over the past three to four years does not have to do with the offense. It has to do with why they haven't been able to rebuild that defense. Why Why has that defense not been good again? And I'm not talking about record-setting fewest points in the league over four, over four years. If If Seattle is going to get back to the top of the division – to being a legit contender, this defense has to be good this year. Like, I, I really believe that like, when we talked about, oh, it doesn't matter until they find the quarterback, this defense should be good. And if it's not, like, there's there's some real questions there because then you're talking about having to find a quarterback and get a good defense, and that's a whole different, that's a, that's a whole different equation. And and I don't know if this defense is going to be good. Um, I... I was not I'm I'm going to say that Saturday's game gives us very little indication either way but it's certainly not assuring <laughs> like there wasn't anything that you come away saying like oh that 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 looked good and you see different things about the way Marquise Blair's bounced around now Ugo Amadi being being traded where you're kind of like are are they starting over again on right. on that side of the ball um there are some things about the that defense that I that I do like but but the tackling, and then the other thing I'll say is that the most impressive player that I saw over the offseason was was Woolen. Um, oh, man. And he he actually, I thought, looked really good. He There were two bright spots on the defense for me in that game, and he was one of them. I thought he looked good. I think he's also, I think you're going to have some tackling issues with him. Um, sure. And we'll, we'll see. I, you need to tackle if you're a Seahawks corner. Um and I'll I'll be interested to see because I I I really like him. I would not be surprised if he ends up if he ends up being the starter week one, and I certainly think he'll be starting before the end of the year. But there there might be more inexperience out there on defense than than I expected. Um, kind of a month or a month or two ago, I'll be it, it, it'll be very interesting to see. I would I would say that I have an arched eyebrow of concern after after the game. <laughs> Like that, that was, that was my reaction. If, if I came into it saying, oh, I don't know how much you're going to be able to read into this given who's not playing, like coming out of it, I was like, Ooh, I, I don't know, man. 
Well, and you see more substitutions on defense than you do on offense, which means your depth is more important on defense mm-hmm. than it is on offense. And so, yeah, we didn't see a lot of the frontline guys in this game, hardly any of them, to be honest. But those dudes that were out there are going to be out there. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, exactly. Like there were guys there. That, that's ex- 100% right. There were some guys on the field that you're expecting to contribute this year. And you're looking at it, you're like, okay, like I – I, I, I hope this is just the 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 knocking the rust off or whatever sort of preseason euphemism you want to throw at it. That said, if I was going to – you talked about Woolen as a highlight. I think they got some speed on the edge of this defense. Like, I do. And uh, and as as you guys uh, corrected my pronunciation before the before the show, Maffei comes yeah. roaring off the edge, man. Oh, man, that, he looks fun. Yeah, that – and – and kind of the question about him has been has been how instinctive of a football player he is. Like, mm-hmm. and is is he someone that will will crash down, or can he understand situational football, recognize things that are happening? But I th- I think between he he and Daryl Taylor, I think I think you're going to have some speed off the edge of this defense that has not been there recently. Yeah, and one of the things that I appreciate about um, the way that the team has talked about Mafe this year is understanding what he's already good at and not rushing the stuff that he's not. Because I think that is one of the biggest mistakes that coaches often make uh, with rookie players is they say, okay, we need you to do all of these things right away. And, you know, I, I think about Aaron Curry a lot when I think about this, you know, he was drafted top five because he was the best see the ball, get the ball defender in college football that year. And at Wake Forest, his whole deal was identify the play, go get the ball. And it didn't matter where the ball was going. He would get there. And then he got drafted and they, they tried to say, no, actually your role is going to be to do this thing that he never really had to do in college. And all of a sudden he was this huge bust. And maybe he would have been a bust anyway, but they took away that instinctiveness that made him such an elite sideline to sideline middle linebacker. And with Mafe. You put that boy's hand in the dirt and let him go, he goes. And I know that at that position, they want him to be able to drop back into the flat and recognize uh, pass routes and jump those and be assignment committed and all of those things, be able to identify option routes coming out of the backfield. That is stuff that's just going to take time. So for now, let him do the things that he can really be a day one impact at doing and then let him learn the other stuff as he goes. And I, I really hope they stick to that. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And Pete's that's one of Pete's strengths has been to give a guy something like don't don't overburden him. Put him in a position to succeed, which is to give him a role that he can thrive in and not take the sink or swim approach of like, well, you're gonna have to be able to do it eventually. So you better be but I, I, I do think and and I think that'll be that'll be something that that he he gets an opportunity to to thrive. Let him get in there and come roaring off the edge because that yeah. certainly looks like something he's ready to do from the jump. Yeah, you know, I I think that obviously we're not going to see much of them this preseason, and Seattle is very obviously in a state of transition as a franchise right now. But there are some studs on this defense, and I do think that we can look forward to this season and expect a top half of the NFL defense. I think with potential to be maybe even a top 10 defense in terms of just overall effectiveness 
limiting things like EPA per play, all of that stuff. Um, I think guys like Jordan Brooks, Quandry Diggs, Jamal Adams all have elite potential. I think we've already seen it from Diggs. We've gotten whiffs of it from Brooks. And I think we all understand that Adams is one of the more difficult players to find a role for and, and really maximize. But I think we can all appreciate that his ceiling is upper tier as well. Where do you guys, I, I'm curious where you guys both see, see Adams. Cause, cause to me, like there's two different questions with him and maybe, maybe you write off last year, what happened is schematic that they put him, they, they were asking him to do something he's not best at. They, they weren't having him, having him back and playing, playing him um, as an, as an over the top safety or is, is a misuse of his talents. And then there's the question of his, his durability. Um, I mean, he's not the first guy to undergo a couple shoulder surgeries. Um, but like that, that is, is, and that's probably more troubling to me even than, than what happened with his finger, which is just such an awful thing. Um, is he still an essential component of this defense? Mike? Yes. I think, (laughs) yeah, yes, there, there you go. That's my highbrow analysis. No, I think that the point of a retooling is accumulating as much blue chip talent as you can. Right. And figuring out how to coalesce that and put together a finished product. So yeah, I, I, I don't want to go into like a sunk cost argument or anything like that, but I think that when Jamal Adams has popped on the field, he has really popped. And I think that he is a big part of paving that road uh, back to being an upper echelon defense. Yeah, I think that's the disconnect. And the guys that I know in the league and have talked to when Seattle acquired him, their reaction was, whoa, like that dude is a thumper. Like there mm-hmm. was like the level, and that's that's not that's not from other other wide receivers. Like it was really like like th- that dude's that dude's a problem um, of how hard he plays and what he was added to. And there's a little bit of me that wonders if if Seattle and this because it this isn't a criticism of Jamal is that that was that was better off early in his career than it is now. And and I'm not sure how much more of that 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 there is left, whether he's physically breaking down or then whatever the hell happened, the way they used him, that, 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 that his, his, the, the curve for him in his career is I'm, I'm not, I'm I'm really not sure how much of an impact player he's going to be going forward. That, that would be, I think that's one of the biggest uncertainties on this team. And if I had to bet, if I had to bet one way or the other, I, I would say like I don't think he's going to be one of their three best defensive players this year. So who would the three be? Who off the top? Who do you think the three would be? Jordan Brooks, I would say. I'm pretty optimistic on 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 Daryl Taylor. Like I I, th- I think I think Taylor's a pretty unique talent. You've got friendly um, company on that here. Yeah, and then I would say Diggs. Like if I was going to say their their top three, and then like hope. Fingers crossed, like nothing more than than blind hope. If Seattle's going to get another young cornerback that just becomes a monster, right. like and it'd be Woolen because he just he looks like Brandon Browner to me, and then runs so freaking fast. But that that would that would be my my answer. And that you've got a 
Adams plays about half the season and is good and has an impact, um, is is a, an effective pass rusher when he's in there, but isn't isn't this defining player for that defense the way he was in 2020? Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. I I think it is the overarching question for this defense and it was a big part from all reports of the interview process for the defensive coordinator like hey we spent a lot of money and a lot of draft capital to bring in this very unique player how are you going to use them because it was clear that the ken norton jr defense was not the best use of jamal adams and you know to the injury point you're right one of the things that made him so ferocious or, or such, such fearsome player is the ferocity with which he played. Um, I remember Danny Kelly describing him saying he plays like he's made out of concrete. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And, and he had, I mean, he was so young when he was drafted. Yeah. And he was the best player on the best defense in college football. The unquestioned leader of that defense at LSU. And, you know, that was a defense that put a lot of guys in the league. It's frustrating. I've used this. Uh, comparison before it just it's frustrating to me like I mentioned with Aaron Curry where you bring in a guy especially if you're going to pay such a high price and then you don't maximize the stuff that he's good at and it reminds me of the Jimmy Graham trade where (laughs) you bring in a guy who literally sued the NFL to be seen as a wide receiver and you put his hand in the dirt on 50% of the plays it's just it's just a a gross misallocation of resources and Look, these NFL coaches are supposed to be the best at what they do. They're paid a lot of money to figure out how to maximize talent. And Jamal Adams is a unique challenge. But I really, really hope that he gets unlocked. And I'm not going to be one of the people that says, hey, he's not a safety and he should never be asked to cover deep. Like, that's something he has to be able to do. He has to be able to do that. And I think he's okay at it. I don't think he's like a massive liability. But he needs to be an instinctive football player. Um, He's not someone that's ever played in a sit back, see which way the play is going and then react. He, he is an aggressor on defense. And that first year they found a way to make him really effective coming off of the edge and, and, you know, setting the sack record for a defensive back. I, I would like to see more of that. That isn't just, okay, we're going to line him up off the right edge and, have him do a bull rush like he did a lot last year, but God, so brutal. I know. I don't hate the process behind the trade, um, but it is looking more and more difficult for it to shake out in Seattle's favor. I think it was going to be tough for them to do that anyway, but the potential was there at this point. I mean, they owe him a lot of money still. I think he, he seems to be beloved on that team. I love watching him play. But that's going to be the biggest challenge for this defense is figuring out not just how to hide his weaknesses, but how to re-weaponize Jamal Adams. Yeah. And I'm past the point of evaluating the trade of like, was it worth it? Sure. Was it not? They, I don't think they're going, they're, they're going to, I don't think they're going to get the value for what they traded for him. I don't think they're going to get the value of the contract they signed him for. But that's like Mike said, sunk cost. Like there's no, the question now is how much, of their the future ability of their defense like how how much is he going to contribute to that and mm-hmm. i i would say that's that's one of the biggest uncertainties i will say in reference to jimmy graham my most lasting memory of him was one of his final plays as a seahawk 
And they had, it was either a third and one or a fourth and one, and they went for it. I think the game was against Arizona. And I will remember forever watching and the running back got stuffed, did not get it. And then on replay watching, and you're like, Jimmy Graham was lined up one-on-one and asked to block, was a Cardinals defensive end. Um, He's from Stanford, uh, Josh Morrow. And, and Morrow just shrugged off, shrugged off the block like he wasn't even there. And my feeling was, that's what you deserve. If uh-huh. you're going to ask yes. Jimmy Graham yes. three years into Thank his you. tenure to block a defensive end in a one-on-one situation, your play deserves to be destroyed. Like that's you, you deserve and, that. And like fans, you, you, right, people you watch should that wear and that. They say, "Oh, Jimmy Graham, he sucks." And no, it's like, no, no, no. Right. The guy asking Jimmy Graham to do that sucks. Like that's right. that's who sucks is the guy deciding that like well this is how this play should work well if that's what you want to do put a different tight end in there yeah it's like it's like uh, trading for Rudy Gobert and then putting him out isolated on Steph Curry and he gets cooked and you're like oh Rudy Gobert sucks it's like no that's not what he does <laughs> he's he's not gonna win in that situation don't put him there you know that that I think is is kind of the the big frustration there. Uh, all right, I want to close up the show by looking forward to the regular season. As you look ahead and you're kind of projecting the range of outcomes here, what is the best realistic one for this team? And and let's just do it in terms of wins and losses. And what's the worst one? Like, if you're looking at a range of probability for the year, what are the edges of the bell curve, the 80% outcome range? Best case scenario is a 10-7 and seven wild card in the playoffs. Wow. You think that that's that's in yeah. that's within the bell, okay? And and I think the the bottom range, I'm going to say is seven and ten. Wow, bottom range is seven and ten. So you're you're seeing this as a league average team this year. What do yeah. you attribute that to? Pete Carroll's style, yeah, because I think he is built to keep games close, mm-hmm. and and I think that he is going to have this team playing for each other. I agree um, with that. Like I I I think they are going to be a competitive team and I really like the thing that I like most about uh, I want all of these people who are like the best possible outcome is for them to go 2 and 15 and be able no, to get man, a high I don't buy pick. that at all. <laughs> it's a a I, I I don't I don't think that's accurate. But B that is so antithetical to the coach that you have. That it just cracks me, and I, I kind of, I hope, I, I enjoy it when I hear those people say that because, I, I kind of, like that's the kind of sports fan that I really have a hard time understanding, which is the the person that roots for. It's not even, it's not even that they're rooting for tanking, because mm-hmm. it's one thing when your team is trying to do that. Clearly, Seattle is not trying to tank. Like clear, clearly, they are, even if they're not like expecting to make the playoffs this year. Like they've built this team with, we want to be the best possible team we can be this year, knowing that we're building toward down the road. Um, it, it, it will be, but yeah, man, I, I don't, I think a six win season is as likely as an 11 win season. I, I really, I, I think they're going to be right in that, that seven to 10 win range. Um, I don't think they'll make the playoffs, but I can see a scenario where they do. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, certainly the most bullish outlook that I've heard so far. Really? Yeah, I'm, like what, I'm into, what, and I'm what, into what, it. Like, what we do need, most people we need think? Some of that. Uh, Dude, they're going to run the ball a ton. 
and they, and they're going to minimize possessions. Like yeah. I do, I do no, think they're, they're going to have. Gonna, they're going to create a lot of situations where it comes down to the outcome of the final two drives of the game. Yes. and at that point, I mean, you play enough possessions in any given game. If you gave every team thirty possessions, the best team's going to win a hundred games out of a hundred games. But if you can limit that to nine or ten possessions yes. each, you're you're creating the chance for variance to work in your favor. And I do agree. This is what Pete Carroll is excellent at doing. Uh, you know, I I have been very vocal about as it became more and more apparent that Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll were probably not going to be able to exist together for the length of another contract. I really wanted them to choose Russ over Pete. Mm-hmm. Understandable. But, but if you're not going to go that route and you are going to do this retool slash rebuild, I'm hard pressed to find a better coach for that than Pete Carroll, who's already a shown he can do it. But two, strategically, you know, the strategy that frustrates me about Pete Carroll when you have a really good team is the strategy that can save them when the talent isn't as good. And I do, I do think they're going to get gritty and grimy and be playing for each other. And if they come out of this with, you know, I've got them at six or seven wins. If they come out with any more than that, they're going to be heading into this offseason believing that they're on the cusp. Just like the 2011 team came off a seven and nine season, really understanding that they were right there. And I think the rest of the league kind of understood this team is on the rise. So we've we've seen this blueprint before. I think it can happen again. There's still a lot of dominoes that need to fall in their favor over the next 18 months in order for that to happen. But uh, I do think that's in the realm of possibility. And to your point about tanking or, you know, they should, they're not going to win anything this year. Let's just lose a bunch of games, get better draft picks on paper. Sure. If you're playing dynasty fantasy football, great, get the higher pick, but these are real human beings with their careers on the line. Most of the guys in this locker room, their career is not solidified. They are They are playing for their livelihood, and winning is all that has mattered to these guys their whole lives. And if they get a sense that the ethos of the franchise is it's okay to lose, you are creating psychological scars in a locker room that don't just get brushed away. There is a reason that bad teams stay bad. There are lots of teams that have drafted in the top five, the top ten, year after year after year. If you finish that poorly... It means you have that little talent. Yes. Like that, that's, that's what it says. And you're just like, okay, we're going to get enough high end draft picks that it, it's, it doesn't work like baseball. No fucking way. Two and 15. You are not a player away. <laughs> no, you're a whole bunch. Um, I also think it's unethical. I think tanking's unethical. Yes. I, I think if, if I had, if you gave me one thing that I could introduce in American sports, it would be relegation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have I have had this conversation before. I'm with you a hundred percent. Send the Rams to the Pac-12. I'm sick of their shit. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, it's it's clear. It's clearly not the Pac-12 now. It's going to be the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be the two minor leagues. Right. Yeah. Like they're going right, to be. Send them to the Mountain West. Then a, I don't a, give a shit. A, exactly. Like and the the bottom two teams will be dispatched to one of those two conferences. The SEC and Big Ten champion will both be promoted into the NFL, and that will eliminate all of the tanking because there's no NFL team that would be like, oh, I've got to go take a college, spend a year sharing their revenue. Like, no, yeah. tanking tanking is a blight. 
it's an absolute blight on American sports. Couldn't agree more. It's a perfect note to end on. Danny, this has been an amazing conversation. We knew it would be, but you delivered in a big way, man. Thank you so much. We're incredibly grateful for your time. Tell the folks listening where they can find you. You can find me on Substack. Uh, at the dang apostrophe, if you search Danny O'Neill Substack, it should take you there. I also wander around on Twitter occasionally, though I'm probably going to be there less going forward. We'll see about that. Uh, I've also been writing for Seattle Magazine. Um, yep. I had a feature on Pete Carroll that ran in the issue that's currently available. And the next issue, I've got a list of the five biggest lies in the history of Seattle sports, as well as an essay on my father's gun. Uh, Come which, on now. Which I'm, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's the, the, that's, that's some of the stuff that I've been up to. All right, man. We'll definitely be looking for that. And as far as we go, you can find me on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. Remember that's J A C S O N. No K is okay. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin and the show itself is at, at cigar thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at cigar thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks cigar thoughts. And of course you can listen to this show and read every article at fuelgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. If you're listening on Apple podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave us a quick review. We feel extremely blessed to have your support as this show continues to grow. Y'all show that not just by tuning in, but in leaving those reviews, sharing on social media, we appreciate it more than we can express here. So we will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh.